What have your discussions with your family been like around mental health? Typical African-American. <laughs> I don't think you already had a, not crazy, I'm going to say crazy, uncle or aunt that, you know, that's just the way they were. It's always kind of been a hush-hush, we don't talk about it. I think it's a, a difficult balancing act. I mean, I would say within like my immediate family, it's not stigmatized. I feel like it's changed recently. There's more talk about mental health on social media and, you know, among friends, peers. I know some folks that go to therapy. You don't tell everybody you go to therapy. It's less of a curse word. It's less of a we don't talk about it. I think we are able to name the thing, but now we're starting to have to engage with the memories of things that have happened, and now that's a little scary. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. Engaging with memories that we've tried to avoid or push down is indeed scary. But as someone who will happily tell you that I'm in therapy, I also know that reckoning with scary stuff often leads to healing. So this week, we're going to engage with some scary memories in our nation's collective past. Memories around mental health care and abuse. We're going to look at one place in particular, a small town in Maryland that shaped a lot about how we address mental health in this country. The story begins in 1911, when 12 men were brought into the woods outside of Baltimore and told to start working. They were tasked with creating one of the first asylums for Black Americans with mental illnesses. It was a segregated facility called Maryland's Hospital for the Negro Insane. And the workers who built it? they would soon become its first patients. The hospital would remain open for 93 years, eventually renamed the Crownsville Hospital Center. It would change the community that lived around it. And today, 20 years after its closing, its impact is still being felt, and not only by people in Crownsville, Maryland. Journalist Antonia Hilton has spent 10 years learning about this institution, and she tells its story in her new book, Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. She joins me now to dig into the history and to explore what it teaches us about mental health in this country. And Antonia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kai. So let's start with that striking story about this institution's origins. The hospital itself was built by the patients, which was an unheard of practice at the time. Um, Can you tell me that story? Who were the 12 men who were tasked with this? Well, we don't know their names. We know some of the names of men who were present in 1911 and 1912 at Crownsville, but we don't know exactly who the first 12 were. And their status as as these nameless people who are transferred from another all-white hospital called Spring Grove, uh, where they were no longer welcomed, uh, and then brought here into the middle of a forest in what, for people who are in Maryland, what they would know as Bacon Ridge Natural Area, um, but at the time would have been this completely uh, thick, uh, you know, empty forest. Um, and they are marched in there on a very cold day, March 13th, 1911, by a doctor and a number of officials in the state of Maryland who bring them not to a hospital ward, uh, not even to a house. They're brought right into the middle of this forest, and they have to start cutting down trees, clearing paths, 
Uh, they have to also harvest willow plant, um, and they have to create baskets and all of these goods that the hospital is preparing to use to offset the cost of the construction and care. And they begin to do the backbreaking work of building an asylum um, that is still standing, mind you, um, more than a century later. Right, you can drive right. down Crownsville Road in Maryland and look at the work of these 12 men. Um, but that that group of 12, they're the first people there for the first few weeks. But week after week, the hospital is bringing in new black men and boys as young as 10 and 12 years old to what is uh, becoming a work colony a plantation of sorts. And why were they, why were these 12 men asked, tasked with building the place in the first place? I mean, was it just like, this is free labor? Or what was the, the justification for that? Well, the state of Maryland had been debating for years what to do about what they called rising insanity among Black people. And they, many of them, and not just in Maryland, all around the United States at the time, in the decades after emancipation, White doctors and politicians would debate what they thought was going on with black people's bodies and minds, and they believed many of them were suffering after emancipation. Very few of them considered the role that enslavement might have played in <laughs> mental uh, suffering, um, and they often thought, well, emancipation had been a mistake. They miss the plantation structure. They miss the good old days. That, that is the natural state of being for black people. And so when they decided that they needed to do something about this insanity among black Marylanders, they realized they wanted to build this institution. Because they believed black people to be so different from white Marylanders, it needed to be in a different place. But they didn't want to pay for it. And so, well, conveniently, all these men can know know how to build. Right, <laughs> they right. they have these skills. Right. Many of them had come off of uh, different farms and sort of ag agricultural work around the state of Maryland, so they already know what to do. And the state takes advantage of that aggressively. And week after week brings in dozens more men, uh, and it takes them three se seasons to build the original iconic structures that are still standing to this day, something that no other patient in the state of Maryland um, of any other racial background was ever forced to do. Um, and at least in my research, I have not been able to find an asylum anywhere else in the country that started this way. On this idea that um, they were insane because they were free and black, this is there was an actual mental health diagnosis at the time, right? A yeah. thing called drapetomania. That's right. Um, going back, tell us what drapetomania was. A um, term coined by a man named Samuel Cartwright, a physician uh, in the South, uh, and he was not alone in 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 kind of creating these pseudoscientific terms in trying to uh, sort of w using science and and medicine. Uh, make sense of or uh, protect, really, um, the racial order of the United States in the 19th century all the way up to the early 20th century. And so he creates this term, and what drapetomania is, in his view, is a disease, a sickness that overcomes black people who defy their master's orders, who run away from plantations and become free. He describes black people's state of being when they do that as indolent, childish, um, very prone to alcoholism, uh, and essentially their minds, he's saying, unravel the moment they don't have the direction, the order, and the control of a benevolent white master. And he would publish these papers and and write letters and, and sort of argue with other physicians, not just because he wanted to 
put his beliefs about black people out there, but actually because he was trying to send a message to slave owners and a sort of an economic message, really, to people running these plantations at the time, that you need to very aggressively beat back any kind of resistance on your plantation. You need to, uh, he encouraged beatings um, and very physical forms of violence back against slaves at the time. Um, as a form of mental illness prevention, right. as a sort of uh, therapy, right. if you can believe it. And so this idea was still part of the supposed science of mental health in the early 1900s when Crownsville is built. Um, but is it also the case at that time there was also this broader idea, no one else had to build their own mental health facilities, but this notion that labor was somehow curative of mental illness was a broader idea outside of the racism of this That's case right. as well, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Help us understand that moment. That had long been the case. This idea that uh, in Europe and in the United States, as these institutions were initially built, uh, that patients shouldn't be idle. They shouldn't be sitting around in rooms all day or sleeping all day. They should go outside. They should work in gardens. Um, and then eventually, uh, they sort of start to follow in the United States a European model of industrial therapy. So the idea is you would get patients working in a laundry or in a carpentry shop. Um, they would maybe be somebody's apprentice while staying at the hospital. Uh, and the goal was that they would work their way up, develop a trade, a skill. And then when they recovered, they would have references. They would have a, a community, a, a real um, background, a resume of sorts to go into a field and begin their life anew. When you look at the records for Crownsville, though, that intention uh, to build a career, to reconnect people to a broader community is lacking. Mm. Uh, and there aren't these sort of internships and apprentice opportunities. It, it, there is a heavy, heavy emphasis on the antebellum plantation structure. And the hospital records show this an extreme attention to um, the cost savings to the government, uh, the amount they can make from selling products, the way in which the patients are producing their own food. So the state is, in other words, not spending money to feed um, the patients themselves. Uh, and in addition to doing all that labor during the day, when they come back inside, they also are serving the superintendent, who's, you know, sort of the head, the white, uh, staff. The, the white staff, they're serving them meals. Uh, you know, you would think in a place like this, because that would have been the case at other institutions, it would have been the other way around. Um, but at this time, you have to remember, during Jim Crow, the this belief that black people are so different and so much less human than anyone else has infected everything, including the clinical setting. Yeah. And so... This recreation of the plantation is in their minds what good therapy, what the natural order of things is. And so that's why you see, you know, yes, there's work across the board for all patients. And that work could be abusive for patients of all backgrounds. But the emphasis on agricultural labor, I mean, they start renting Crownsville patients out to nearby private businesses, which is part of an item. This same thing is happening in, in corrections at the time, correct? That, that they're arresting black people for being idle and then renting them out uh, right. to idle plantations in a recreation of slavery. So that same thing is happening in the mental health space. In the mental health space, in the correction space, in the reformatory space. So uh, during that period in the early 20th century, there are all these 
schools for boys and girls who have misbehaved or, uh, you know, gotten in trouble with their families or have become orphans. And similarly, those institutions for black boys typically end up kind of feeding into that same system as well. I'm, I'm midway through Tananarive Du's latest oh, mystery, yes. the reformatory, uh, about the ghost of just that, and it's chilling. Uh, we need to take a break. I'm Kai Wright, and this is Notes from America. I'm talking with NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton about her new book, Madness, Race, Insanity, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. Coming up, we're going to add your voices to the conversation. You can call or send us a text message if you've got a question about the history of Crownsville Hospital or maybe a personal experience with mental health in your family that you'd like to share. I'm particularly curious if we have anyone listening who had family at Crownsville or another segregated institution like that. More just ahead. Hi, I'm Regina, a producer here at Notes from America with Kai Wright. I know, I know, you're loving this episode. I promise I won't hold you long. But I have to ask, have you seen what we're up to on Instagram? That's where we post questions to you that help shape the conversations that we have on this podcast. Plus, it's a great way to keep up with the show. Follow Notes with Kai on Instagram. That's at Notes with Kai. And we'll talk to you there. Thanks for listening. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with journalist Antonia Hilton about her new book. It's called Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. We can also talk about her work covering mental health in this country generally, and we can take your calls and texts if you've got a question about the history Antonia describes or the ways in which racism and other biases have shaped our understanding of mental health. Talk to us. And Antonia, your own family history with mental illness and the silences around it was one of your provocations in, in doing this research. Can you introduce us to your father's cousin, Maynard, who um, he was was this wonderful young man uh, in your family? What was he like? What was his 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 personality like in your family? Maynard was this beautiful, hilarious, athletic, belligerent presence in my family. Mm. Uh, and I come from a very big black family. And so to stand out um, says some something. Doing. Yes, it <laughs> takes a lot of personality, actually. Um, you know, he loved poetry. He read all kinds of philosophy. He was a huge fan of Malcolm X and carried around an autographed copy of his autobiography um, until he then decided to hand it down to his little brother, Kendall, who mm. is my dad's cousin, but I consider him an uncle. Mm -hmm. um, and he was really a mentor to, to a lot of the other young men in my dad's generation. You know, he taught them a lot of their first swear words. <laughs> um, you know, he would help my 
dad and his twin brother and his older brother, they would get into joking boxing matches uh, at dinner time. He would drink with my grandparents and argue about Richard Nixon <laughs> and all. He liked to call it his theories of the world order. Um, and oh. so he was someone who was so alive, um, so interested in politics and civil rights and in being black in America. Um, and as he got older, uh, it was really hard for people in the 60s and 70s in my family to to see this. Um, but he started becoming more conspiratorial, um, uh, started sleeping less and less. Uh, and they didn't know it at the time, but he was uh, he had schizophrenia mm -hmm. um, and he was hearing voices. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem was and and this is what I hear from my father and from my uh, uncle Kendall and others who were around at the time, you know, this I, the, the paranoia, fear right. in that period in America was commonplace for black people. I mean, at this time, you know, at one point he visits my father in the in the 70s when my dad is just about 11 years old. And, um, you know, my dad grew up with the riots in Detroit right. and um, this kind of fear of persecution, um, rejection from the system, concern that the man was after you is pretty normal. And so it's hard to diagnose um, mental illness in those circumstances. Um, and it's not until uh, Maynard is killed by a police officer back in his home state of Alabama on the steps of a federal building in Mobile um, that my family really uh, is faced with what Maynard has been dealing with all along. And and what happened to Maynard in that in that incident? Maynard, what we really all we know about what happened to Maynard that day comes from the Mobile, Alabama Police Department. There are no witnesses in our family, no family friends who were there at the federal building downtown. Um, so what we know from their version of events is that Maynard arrived uh, in distress um, begging someone to take him out of the country, um, fearful for his life and wanting to get out of the United States as fast as possible. Uh, he encounters a guard. That guard uh, runs inside. Um, and it turns out Maynard has a, a gun on him. Uh, a white police officer arrives on the scene and within seconds of finding Maynard, um, alleges that Maynard runs at him with the gun and he shoots him in the abdomen and kills him. Um, and it is a death that is so traumatizing and so strange for my family that when it happens in the 70s, it becomes impossible for generations of my family to figure out how to talk about Maynard, mm. um, you know, for, for the rest of time. Mm. And uh, it, his death changes my father. It changes his brother, Kendall. Um, a year later, Maynard's dad, who was his senior, and you know, Maynard was his namesake, passes away. Um, and uh, everyone in the family believes it's from heartbreak. Um, and all that loss in such a short period of time, um, my family really starts to sort of pick up this habit of deciding that not talking about mental illness, um, not addressing Maynard's life. I mean, they hide photographs of Maynard. Um, so his photos are taken down from mantles. Um, you know, I grew up, by the time I was born, I knew his name, but I'd never seen his face. Um, I knew his death, but I didn't know a thing about his life. Um, 
And for me and my, I'm one of seven kids. For me and my six siblings growing up, we had a lot of anger about how little some of the older generations in our family wanted to talk about these things. Um, many of us experienced depression and anxiety growing up, and we would try to talk about these things right. or try to know if someone else had gone through it, and we couldn't get answers. Right. Um, and so at first, I was really angry with my family, and Maynard came to symbolize that anger. Um, and then when I came to understand this history, both the, the fullness of Maynard's life, but also this broader history that for me, Crownsville has come to represent, um, I had a lot more patience and compassion yeah. for them because I, I see how um, black families come to, you know, sense that they're not safe in these spaces, that there is there either is no care available to them or if, or if there is care, that it can be harmful. Um, and, you know, what, in those circumstances, what is there to talk about? What is there to do? How do you help? Yeah. Um, who can you call? And so I see their actions now as a sort of defense mechanism or a, a strange way of thinking that they they could protect us. Um, but all they really did do was make us all so much more curious. Um, like I felt like a like I had to know who Maynard was. I missed this person who I never got the chance to meet yeah. um, because I could see how much he had clearly affected my father and my uncles and my grandparents. Um, and so one of the things I do in the book, in addition to telling the story of Crownsville Hospital, is share some of my family's experiences with the mental health care system in America. Um, and I share more of Maynard's life um, because I think part of the, I guess, the, the, the driving force behind all this for me is this feeling that we shouldn't hide our family members who've suffered. Right. Um, we shouldn't take their photos down. They shouldn't be you know, a footnote in our family history. They deserve to be out front. Their stories need to be told. And actually, if we talk about them more and we love on them a little bit harder, um, all of us will be better for it. And maybe our system will be better. Um, so. And there's so many of us with similar stories. Um, let's go to Hannah in Mound, Minnesota, who has a question. Hannah, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I just really kind of wanted to draw a line, and I don't know necessarily if I can articulate it in the best way as a question. But when you're talking about, like, the institution of slavery, and then you're talking about institutionalizing people post-slavery um, based mostly on color, and then you correlate it to the current prison system, which, again, isn't incarcerating people of color on a high level. And a lot of these prisons are actually, well, some prisons are built actually on the sites of past plantations. And that these people are put into the same situation that we're looking at in the story that I think it's just perpetuating over time with different veils. And that it's the same thing. It's like you're taking a person and you're dehumanizing them on a basis, and then you're institutionalizing them for the benefit of a different wow. society. And it, it really is the perpetuation of slavery. I'm going to stop you there, something. Hannah, and thank you for that that tie. Um, and, you know, in the book, Antonio, you, in fact, talk about a lot of yeah. these sort of interconnected perpetuations that Hannah's talking about through actual individual families. Um, so one of them I want to ask you about, which is really striking, is 
that the daughter of Henrietta Lacks mm-hmm. um, was a patient at Crownsville. So the quick backstory, Henrietta Lacks was a black woman who had cervical cancer and doctors harvested her cells without her consent. Those cells have been the basis for huge amounts of medical research, uh, including the development of a polio vaccine. Uh, but her family never knew about it for decades. Um, and it turns out that Henrietta's daughter, Elise, was at Crownsville. What can you tell me about Elise and why her story is an important example of this sort of intergenerational question? Well, for me, there's a parallel, a direct parallel between Henrietta Lacks and her daughter, Elsie, who's there, who's goes as just a child. Yeah. And um, Elsie goes to Crownsville around the same time that Henrietta's health is declining. Henrietta and her family are struggling to care for um, her daughter because she has been born with what they called um, idiocy at the time. Um, She's unable to speak. Uh, She mostly sort of communicates through um, cries and and sort of physical signs. Um, And Henrietta and her have this very special bond, but Henrietta becomes overwhelmed. Um, And as many people did at that time, needed to send this child somewhere. So they bring her to Crownsville, the only place that would accept black people suffering with any of these kinds of developmental, cognitive, um, behavioral, emotional differences. Um, And Elsie ends up subjected to experimentation and to abuse by science in a different way um, at, at the very moment that her mom is having her cells taken from her. And so Elsie is subjected to a really gruesome procedure uh, in which staff at the hospital uh, drill into her skull and um, several other, or many other, dozens of other patients um, who are just like Elsie. Uh, They pump the skull full of air and helium, um, and they want to get a look at uh, people who have have a condition called epilepsy um, or what they thought was epilepsy at the time. And this, these experiments, the drilling through their, the, the patient's brains, um, they don't even publish anything that we can find in the record that leads to any uh, new discovery, any uh, new therapy for the patients there. But about 100 children like Elsie are subjected to this. And Elsie ends up dying at 15 with extreme complications from all of this. Um, and for me, what I was so struck by with Elsie's story, which was first reported by Rebecca Sklut in Henrietta's um, – in all of her reporting on Henrietta's family. Um, I think often people think about Henrietta Lacks and the billion-dollar cells. You think about uh, the Tuskegee syphilis study, these big flashy moments or a single person. But when you see that this happened twice to just one family, you're actually, I think Elsie's story calls on us to consider the fact that this was happening in a lot of small, quiet, and different ways in facilities all around our country. And that very likely these things have contributed to a current reality in which these very same communities have very fraught relationships with institutions like Johns Hopkins or uh, like mental health care facilities all over this um, state. I mean, country, really. Um, And so, you know, you see it happen twice just to this one family. I've met Henrietta's descendants. They are still angry at the medical systems in in Baltimore and Annapolis more broadly. Indeed, I would hope so. They are. And <laughs> and and so um every single one of these moments whether they've been reported um uh, or, or published or not 
they have led to a sort of domino effect um, and a disconnection and an isolation and exploitation of um, communities like ours. And uh, that's uh, that's why I give Elsie's story, um, you know, the space that I do in the book, because I think it's important for us to see this is so much bigger than some of the major incidents or stories we we often recognize. Or we think we can just pay people back, you know, for one. <laughs> um, but it's a lot, the pain goes a lot deeper than that. I, I hope we have time before we take a break. I want I want to ask you to read a poem from the book. Uh, it was because it gives us a little sense of of what we're talking about for the patients. It was written in 1952 by a man named Mister New Unit. Yes, and that's a pseudonym. Um, uh, many of the patients at Crownsville would write poetry and publish them in weekly newsletters or just write them on the wall, um, and they would use pseudonyms. So Mr. New Unit wrote this poem in April 1952 at a time when the asylum was still 100% black, um, and he wrote, If you get sick against your will, they will bring you to Crownsville. But if you're a lucky so-and-so, it won't be long before you go. The doctors keep you until, and there you'll stay in Crownsville. And if they don't make up their mind, you'll stay there for a long, long time. But when it's time for you to go, you and everybody will know. And your mission, you'll fulfill. Then you can leave Crownsville. But someday in the sweet by and by, you won't have to stay there until you die. Just trust in God and you can depend. He will bring things to an end. So that is quite affecting. And it points to the question of, you know, how how often did patients actually leave the facility? During the first half of the 20th century, you were more likely to die in Crownsville than to get out. Um, there was very little, I mean, Sometimes you would look at uh, uh, records for one year and just 12 people of the thousands um, were able to get reconnected to their families or communities. Um, and in that same year, maybe 100 or so people would would perish there. Um, and so I think that this poem reflects uh, the hopelessness, um, the isolation of that time. And when I found it, it was really amazing to me because one of the things that was so frustrating while doing this reporting um, was that prior to about 1955, there were almost no patient voices. Doctors really, and, you know, the majority of the staff in this period is all, they're really all white. They're mm -hmm. systematically barring black people from being able to work as nurses and doctors in the institution at that time. And, you know, they, in their notes, are not, putting patients' perspectives, stories, personal memories. Um, they're not making much of an effort to call their families or to integrate families into care. And it's not until about 1955 and um, into the 60s as more and more Black people get their very first jobs there that those things start to shift, not because a new medication arrives on the ward, not because there's new technology, really, um, although some of that does start to arrive, what really starts to shift a lot of the relationship and your access to patient perspectives is simply that there were black people there who knew them. Mm -hmm. I mean, who literally rode the bus to school with right, them right. Um, and who then start saying, oh, we have to do something about this. My guest is Antonia Hilton, author of Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. 
Up next, we'll hear from you about the discussion of mental health and mental illness, how it unfolds in your families. If you've got a question for Antonia, again, you can text us or call us. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. This is Notes from America. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Before we get back to our conversation, a quick note about next week's show. The countdown to Election Day 2024 is on, and we're going to be checking in with different kinds of voters, or not voters, about what their priorities are this year. And first up, we want to hear from people in our audience who consider themselves conservative, whatever that means to you. In particular, We want to hear from conservatives for whom Donald Trump is decidedly not a candidate you can get behind. We want to know what's on your minds now that he's poised to be the Republican nominee and where you are planning to put your political energy this year. The best way to talk to us is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at notes at WNYC.org. Right now, we are spending time with Antonia Hilton, author of Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. And we can take your calls and questions for her about the history that she has covered here. And let's go to Pascal in Jericho, New York. Pascal, welcome to the show. Hi, Ty. Thank you so much for taking my call and covering this such an important talk, uh, topic with this author, Ms. Hilton. Um, I'm an adult, child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I'm teaching medical students, and I literally just had a talk about racism in psychiatry, and we talked exactly about this topic, about how our country has really had a history of racialized social control that's reinvented itself to meet the dominant social class according to the constraints of, of every era. So just going back to the Jim Crow era, I talked specifically about the Central Lunatic Asylum in Virginia, where Blacks would be um, thrown in there for, you know, not getting off the sidewalks if they um, didn't let a white person pass, or, you know, things like talking back to a boss or and the like. Um, and just, you know, the treatment was really, as you had mentioned, putting them into hard labor that sort of mimicked um, slavery um, at the time. And it's no wonder that... Um, you know, Blacks um, don't mistrust the mental health system, and we're seeing the repercussions today. And that's what I was telling my students, that, you know, there's a lack of Black psychiatrists. There still continues to be diagnostic biases, and the mental health payment structure really excludes people who can't afford to pay out of pocket. So um, thank you, um, Ms. Hilton, for your book. I can't wait to get it. My students actually <laughs> came up to me and showed me the book. Oh, there you go. Um, Good students. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Good students. So important. Uh, um, you know, and even as a Black woman in psychiatry, we have to face this history so that we don't repeat any of this um, and be vigilant, not just in psychiatry, but in all fields mm-hmm. of medicine. So thank you so, so much. Thank, thank you, you, Pascal. And th- that points to, you know, a lot of what you talk about in the book are the Blacks, when the, when the Black staff did finally arrive. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, there's one story in your book that I think really shows the difference that it made. Um, you tell the story of a man named Mr. Bell, who was in Crownsville for decades until a black nurse comes into the facility and starts spending time with him. Can you tell us what happens to him after that? Oh, boy. This is a story that I think about all the time. Uh, 
Mr. Bell is on an overcrowded, underfunded ward uh, packed with hundreds of men on a floor in Crownsville. And um, one week in 1955, a woman named Marie Goff gets her first job there and is told she's assigned to this ward. And Marie is about five feet tall, um, you know, maybe 100 pounds soaking wet. And she and a few other women are assigned as some of the first black women underneath white supervisors on the ward. Um, She goes in and she starts to see how filthy, how terrible everything is. She starts to politely try to push her supervisor to let her bring some of the patients outside. She brings this gentleman, Mr. Bell, along with another group of patients outside after a few weeks of fighting on their behalf. And he tells her he hasn't seen the sun or the sky in years. Mm. Um, And she just becomes curious about him. So she digs into his history and discovers that the only reason that he was brought to Crownsville is because her supervisor in coordination with authorities in Baltimore had overheard him speaking and he has a British accent. And they had never heard a black person with a British accent. So they thought he just made it up. Um, So they pick him up. uh, You know, he's brought to Crownsville. He's there for years. And it turns out Uh, Once Marie gets to know Mr. Bell, that he was born in London, he was a jockey, came to America and fell on some hard times, but he had never made that accent up, and he had no actual mental health diagnosis. And so, you know, she's exactly right. These, These institutions became receptacles for Black Americans seen as strange, as unwelcome, as just not fitting into the broader um, status quo. I also tell the story at one point of a, a, a researcher who comes to work at Crownsville in the in the, one of the psychiatric uh, sort of departments where they're really looking at patient, patient files but not working closely with the patients themselves. And she sort of freaks out when she discovers a record of a patient who's brought there um, for the crime of cutting off a, a white woman who's on a horse in in traffic on the street. Um, and that patient, too, had been at Crownsville for a very, very long time. And it's it, one of my favorite parts of the reporting is, you know, a lot of these women who came in and started to change the culture, who started to ask the questions, you know, they they arrived and it was not rocket science. Um, they really start just with their kindness, their willingness to listen, to pick up the phone and try to reach a family member or a loved one. Uh, They start to change patient outcomes, get people out of Crownsville for the first time and back home. Um, And they also start treating their own friends and neighbors that they grew up with and giving them this sort of extra level of love. Um, They kind of wrap their arms around the people that they know there and commit themselves to a kind of form of community mental health care that at one point our country thought we would really build, um, Mm -hmm. but never came to be. But in this strange moment, this place that has this sordid history comes to actually represent a community that's finally taking care of itself for a short period of time. And it's those women, majority of them women, but also men, um, who make all the difference. Well, and it's it's interesting too because you taught, the place was open until 2004 for, you know, within maybe, our lifetimes. You know. Very much. So, so there are lifetimes. many living people for you to talk to and you talk to staff members um uh and some don't uh, believe that it should have been closed. Um uh, tell me about that. Um, I, I think there was one nurse in particular, Joyce Phillip, who um, who, who said— Joyce you know, Phillip, uh, Faye Belt, doesn't feel like Crownsville should have closed. Um, and that's not because they believe that these institutions were perfect, shouldn't have been reformed um, and altered in a, in, in a significant way. But their concern is that what we've left ourselves with is worse. 
um, that, you know, what they tell me is they drive around and, and I got to ride around with them and see Annapolis and, and Baltimore through their eyes. Their patients are living under overpasses out on the street. Some of them are in group homes if they are lucky, but those group homes often mistreat them. Uh, many of them have passed away, and then many of them have ended up in prison and in jail. Um, and so they, and I think the other piece of this that, that that breaks their hearts is that, you know, they put in all this effort in the 60s, 70s, 80s. After these medications arrive, they're able to try to do trauma-informed care. They're bringing more um, talk therapists onto the wards. Um, and black women and men are treating black women and men. And it's really a community hospital for the first time. Uh, just at that moment where they're starting to build a community hospital, the state starts chipping away at funding, rolling back support for mental health care services, and constructing new juvenile facilities, new prisons and jails around the state of Maryland. Um, and that's really where their their institutional focus shifts. And so they, these doctors, these black doctors come to feel like, well, we fought and fought and fought for integration. We fought to come in here and to have access to the space. And at the very moment we win, now they want our people to end up somewhere else. And so there's that that anger at what could have been, and I think there's that outrage at what we all, I think, around this country can see we've been left with, which is a mental health care system that's really in tatters that, um, you know, even the wealthy have anger and concern about. I mean, you can have great insurance and be uh, waiting for six months on a wait list to get uh, to see a certain doctor or to get a bed in an inpatient treatment facility. Um, and if you don't have great insurance, well, you're just out of luck. Yeah. I mean, so this is a much larger question than you have time to answer for, but how did we end up there? <laughs> um, you know, wh wh where where is the pivotal point that we end up there? Is this, be, is this the, in fact, the closure of uh, mental health institutions in the early 80s that some may have heard of? Where's Where in your mind is the pivotal point that brings us there? Well, a lot of people argue about this. Um, I think my personal pivotal point is actually in the 60s during the civil rights movement, because there are a few things going on in that moment that I think are not properly understood. There are these different movements sort of concurrently happening there. So on the one hand, we have a community, a culture that is becoming <clears throat> more you know, uh, sympathetic toward patients. Medications are arriving and there's a push, a drive, get them out of the hospitals, back to the community. We want patients home. But at the very same time, the civil rights movement is happening. There's unprecedented levels of protests. Police are responding, uh, brutally beating people in the streets and black um, men are being carted off to jail or, or their uh, protests being criminalized and pathologized in some ways. Um, and so, as at the very moment where our, our society says it has become more compassionate to people with mental illness, it's become very uncomfortable with and very reactive to black protest and black criticism of this country. And that means that as the, de the, the hospital deinstitutionalizes, but we build more prisons and jails, um, there's a major shift happening. And black people are right at the center of that shift and decisions our country starts to make about who is sick and who is criminal, who deserves care, and who deserves incarceration, who do we think can be f redeemed, fixed, rehabilitated, and who is a lost cause. And that is, for me, that those conversations start in the 60s. And so a lot of times people want to say Reagan shows up and he ruins everything. It's not quite right. It's not Ronald Reagan. It no, goes, it goes unfortunately, yeah. he, he, he helped lower the system into the grave and close the casket and all that, but but it, it starts unraveling a lot mm. sooner. Mm. 
Uh, we have a caller from Baltimore who asks, "Does do you know what happened to the advocate Sharon Jones? Her relative was in Crownsville, and she fought for better care. Are you familiar with, with the advocate Sharon I'm not Sharon off the top of my head familiar with her. Um, but I can tell you, um, if you are listening and you know somebody who has a connection to Crownsville, that there are teams of people. There is a local historian named Janice Hayes-Williams who has done a lot to catalog um, former patients there, particularly if you have loved ones who've passed away. She has compiled a binder, which I actually have in front of me here, with the names of people who were buried on site. Um, we also have records for people who were sent as cadavers uh, to medical institutions around the state of Maryland. Um, and there are living nurses who have a lot of memories of patients who they worked with. And so some of this, um, you know, you can have an easier time finding that connection through community than you can if you honestly go through some of the bureaucratic red mm-hmm. tape of, of mm-hmm. um, you know, the state and local government. Uh, another question, sort of like this uh, text, somebody text message asks, it, was San Quentin's gas chamber built by inmates as well, that they were under the impression that that was true? That ve- that may be that may be true. Okay, I would want to double check right. that. You can't, you can't be the source of fact. <laughs> I don't want to be the source of that. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Speaking of all of these sort of connections, one more thing I want to ask you about that's connected is you've talked talked about Jordan Neely. Um, yeah. And so this was the young man who was killed on the New York City subway uh, in last spring, um, in what appeared to be a mental health crisis. Um, and you covered that story, and you see through lines between that and what happened to your father's cousin Maynard um, and the story you tell in Crownsville. Can you just connect folks who connect the history to to, to Jordan Neely's story? Yeah, I, I try and to bring you to the present day and to Jordan Neely um, so that people can see how each era of our mental health care system has built upon the one that came before it. Um, and I, I see there were so many similarities for, between my cousin Maynard and, and Jordan Neely. Uh, they're pretty close in age, 27 and 30. Um, they're both experiencing um, a psychiatric crisis, uh, and they both come out in public to make a declaration of suffering. Uh, so in the case of my cousin Maynard, he goes to the federal building in, Maynard, uh, in, in Mobile, Alabama, and he says, you know, someone needs to take me out of this country. He can't take it here anymore yeah. in America. Yeah. That's literally what he's asking someone to do. Yeah. Um, and Jordan Neely, according to the New York Times, according to video taken that day, is, steps asking, for on, help. is asking for help. I haven't had food. I haven't yeah. had a drink. I'm fed up, is what he says. Yeah. Um, and so immediately when I heard that story, uh, I thought of my cousin, my dad's cousin Maynard, um, And I guess I found myself asking all the same questions that many of the nurses and doctors at Crownsville have posed to me about, well, is is what we've got going on now better than this system we had in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? And do when when it comes to mental health care in America, are we doing more or better for Black Americans in particular? And I think when you see that Jordan Neely had 40 prior interactions, about 40 prior interactions with. you know, whether that was police or that was mental health care service providers in the uh, in the city, uh, and that in each case, he ends up back on the streets in New York, yeah. still very much suffering, not getting proper care, um, not properly reconnected with family. Uh, and you see, and I look back at what happened to Maynard. Yeah. 
So, you know, I, because we've got about two minutes left here, and I think all of that leads me to a question that that wraps us up <laughs> that, a, that a caller has, a texter has. She says, the person says, this is so angering. In black in the black community, I've seen a lack of trust of dentists, doctors, and any invasive testing. I've also experienced racism in medical care. It definitely affects our health outcomes. I particularly think black women are given short shrift in getting diagnoses of successful medical care. What can we do to change this? So in the, the, the 90 seconds or so we have here, how do you answer that? So I'll tell you what the doctors and nurses of Crownsville, what many black psychiatrists are telling me, uh, who I spoke to and who you'll hear from in this book, um, a few things. They think that we need to recommit ourselves to building the community mental health care um, and uh, reconstructing hospitals, not like the mammoth institutions we saw in the past, but by like the actual specialized clinics politicians once promised us they would fund, that there should be a groundswell of movement around that, they believe. Uh, Many black psychiatrists believe that we should teach people the same way we teach people CPR, we teach them what to do if there is a shooting at school or at their workplace, that we should teach people the signs of mental suffering, of what to do, of what the proper phone numbers are to call, um, so that people can uh, support loved ones or colleagues uh, when they experience those moments, and then also get to the right people. So it's not the police, it's not authorities who respond. The other act that I think many of them would like to see more of are people being supportive of things like parks and green space and libraries Mm. and public schools, that the erosion of these spaces is contributing to a mental health crisis, particularly for young children in America right now. And they believe that, you know, none of this is actually all that complicated. And if we recommit ourselves to it and we make our voices heard, we have a much better system and outcome. Antonia Hilton is author of Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. Thank you so much for the book and for this conversation. And thanks to our, all our listeners, especially those who called in. I can confirm that, uh, according to ABC, San Quentin was built by inmates on a prison ship. So, Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Check us out wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. This episode was produced by Suzanne Gabber. Our theme music and sound design is by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando was at the boards for our live show. Our team also includes Regina DeHear, Karen Froman, Felice Leone, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. And I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us. 